Welcome to episode number five of the Motor Mouthing Podcast, the podcast where I make interesting people chauffeur me around in interesting cars. This week I went to see James Cameron from Mission Motorsport, the Forces Motorsport charity. If you've been listening to the other podcasts in this series, then, well, first of all, thank you and well done. You're officially part of my gang. But if you heard episode two with Ralph Hosier, then you may recall hearing about Mission Motorsport because Ralph works for them. He's in charge of the training wing, giving veterans diplomas in vehicle maintenance and repair. But today, we're gonna go into even more detail with James. So, let's do it. Here's James and his car. I'm in another interesting car today with another interesting person. Uh, His name is James Cameron, and he's the CEO and co-founder of an organization called Mission Motorsport. And they're essentially a charity, but they also do quite a bit more than that. Um, They help injured servicemen and women uh, in recovery, and they do that through cars and motorsport. James is also a motoring journalist, a racing driver, general petrol head, and he was formerly a major in the Royal Tank Regiment, was it? Yeah, that's right. Royal Tank Regiment. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Let's start by talking about the car. So this is your car. Tell us what it is. This is a 1973 Porsche 911. Originally it was a 911T and it's now a bit of a it's a bit of a hybrid. So it looks like a 27 RS, um, but it's got a a more modern 3.2 litre engine in the back of it. So it's it's a bit of a hot rod. So it's white with the blue Carrera livery on the side. Yes. So is that a, and a, a that's an RS? Uh, it is, thing, yeah. Is so that, that's a 27 RS. So in 72, 73, um, Porsche produced a sort of ultra lightweight variant of the car, lighter panels, lovely MFI, uh, manual fuel injected engine, and then panicked like hell because that was as the fuel crisis hit. Oh, right. Uh, they, they were so scared of being embarrassed by having produced this thing and then nobody would buy it that they issued them compulsory as company cars to all of their executives um, uh, at the time of its release for the motor show so they could demonstrate that these things were sort of out there. And, of course, they were ridiculously popular, sold like hotcakes, and they, they did a... Uh, a limited sort of second production run, so they made, they made a, an additional batch over what they'd, they'd first done. And the, the original 2.7s are now just worth ridiculous money, I mean, insane amounts of cash, because they've, they've sort of become iconic, people really prize yeah. them. Yeah. I mean, this very much looks the part, so it's certainly from a distance, but it's, it's an original period 73 mm-hmm. T. The T had a smaller engine in it um, originally. This now has got a... 3.2 litre, uh, basically a 1980s 911 engine in it as well, which makes a good bit more horsepower and a good bit more torque. Um, the the lovely thing about the old 911s, though, uh, it's not a lovely thing, it's a bloody awful thing, but it's something that 911 owners will tell you is very important for the whole experience, which is the fact that the the engine finds its, its the power through to the back wheels through some sort of a... Um, Stuttgart agricultural device which is an excuse for a gearbox where you have to apply often in triplicate to Stuttgart for the for, for third gear for example and the answer right. is still often nine right. um, <laughs> is that part of the charm of an old 911 yeah that? completely and it's one of those things you can't just jump in one of these and drive quickly you've got to kind of you've got to work with the car mm. in order to make it go well now of course I mean these things have got amazing race pedigree and rally pedigree oh, yeah, rally before racing um, so they can do extraordinary things, and that weird weight distribution in one of these means that 
if you harness it, you can use it tremendously effectively. But it doesn't happen by accident. So if, if you're really going quickly in a 911 without binning it, um, you're very much part of the equation. It's not just the car that's doing it for you. So they're, they're a lot heavier at the back and a lot lighter at the front. Yeah, absolutely. So the front end will sort of bob about. It's pretty rubbish in conventional terms mm. because if there's no weight on the front end, they understeer like you wouldn't believe. They, you know, they'll just push onwards. Really? And there's nothing in the front that's pushing the front end down. Yeah. So I've got um, I've actually got a 1976 Carrera three-litre race car, which has to carry ballast for the class which it runs in in the uh -huh. um, Porsche Club Championships. And instead of putting it in the passenger seat, which is where you would normally want to put your ballast offset yeah. from the driver and in the middle of the car, it's literally right in the nose. It's right behind the front bumper. The, the, the compensation is the steering is delightfully communicative in a good way. It dances about underneath you and you absolutely feel exactly what the front wheels are doing. So having said that there's not much grip at the front end, you can feel that. And you can feel as you use weight balance to sort of move the car around. Um, you, can, you can feel when that grip comes and it, it tells you exactly what's going on. And that's one of the things that kind of makes them rewarding to drive. They're, they're very analog. There's loads of information coming back to the driver. Yeah. Some, some, of it, some of it good as well as bad. Well, they're very raw, aren't they, 911s? And I think they are still yeah. to this day. But yeah. you still hear the flat six. There's still a kind of certain amount of transmission noise that you get. If I stick it in second and put my foot down. Wow. It picks its skirts up and goes, and it's really characterful, you know, which is nice. So it really does go. Obviously, for the recording, we reached a maximum speed there of 59.7 miles an hour. Yeah, of the speed limit, just yes. under, yeah. Yes, that's true. I saw we that. <laughs> it, it's a great thing, you know. Um, and this is my daily. Is it really? When I can. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm the same age as the car, so this car's eight days older than me. Oh. Um, and uh, so it's 43. Uh, and when I sort of turned 40, um, I bought this car... I got left a little bit of money when my grand died some years ago. Right. And had managed to persuade my incredibly forgiving wife that yeah. uh, a classic 911 was going to be more fun than an ISA and potentially would, an wouldn't, wouldn't well. lose money. Yeah. yeah. It was a bit of a crop when we bought it, to be perfectly honest. Right. Because um, I, I bought it from a bloke uh, who lived uh, in Valley on Anglesey within sight of the sea. And wow, that's buy, not a great place to, to buy, buy a, car a 1970s from. Porsche from a bloke. Yeah, exactly. Who can who can see the sea from his house, and was also really fond of doing his own mechanics. So it was complete. Right. It, it was it's a lot of rust and a lot of bodges. And then when I turned 40, I sort of thought, right, okay, I'm bollocks. I'm going to use it. Um, you know, prices had started to to creep up, and they they've just sort of got worse and worse. But yeah. I just don't. I don't want to salt it away. I don't want to just sort of leave it somewhere. So no. The road we're on, this is my commute, normally. It's sort of 50% of my time I'm, I'm working out of the Mission Motorsport headquarters. And so this is my way to work. And you look down the bonnet and go, life's good, quite. Yeah, you know. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I mean, they need to be driven really, don't they, classics? The, the worst thing to do is yeah. just to leave it at home and because you just, I don't know, unless you're active about using the thing, you, no matter how much you love cars, it can two years can go by easily, and uh, yeah, and the thing hasn't moved. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Because you've got a bit of a collection of things stuck in corners as well, haven't you? Well, I've got two things stuck in corners. There's the Buick and then there's the MG. And they're, they're not nails. They were, they were good cars until I, <laughs> you know, left them and, and ignored them. But um, the problem is I feel really guilty about it. You know, I feel guilty about neglecting cars. Yeah. It's, like, it's like neglecting a child. I completely agree. I've got a 968, which is languishing outside the workshops. I saw that earlier. It's really bothering me. I like no, those. They're cool. It, it is lovely. It's, it, it's absolutely fab. That one's supercharged. It's a bit trick and it's got yeah. some other bits and pieces on it. It's not, not turned a wheel in anger in over a year. And time no. just goes, you know. It you, does. How many cars have you got? Um, uh, You've got to think now. Well, I'm also thinking about whether my wife will ever listen to this podcast. Mm. Um, I'm not really sure, actually. I, I would genuinely have to count. Um, I have a number. It's, 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 gone, it's gone up a little bit of late because I've had a, a sort of rash of buying four-wheel drive things. And, and part of that is because of the... One of the fantastic activities we're doing at the moment is we're running a Defender Challenge car, um, which is uh, a Land Rover Defender that, that we're, we're taking rallying and it's doing all sorts of cool stuff, which is ace. Yeah. And it's kind of showcasing the work that we do with Jaguar Land Rover, putting blokes in jobs. Mm-hmm. So it's all very worthy, but that's given me an excuse to go and buy a ridiculous Trials Defender 90, which, to be honest, <laughs> really? when I was at school, that was kind of one of the cars of my dreams. I would have... Is that what I saw back in yeah. the workshop? Yeah, I would have... For that, that, that car, when I was... Probably when I was 17, 18, I would have... I would have quite happily donated a testicle for it's, um, it's, it's a great piece of kit. Right. Was that a pickup? I didn't... Yeah, it is, yeah. So it's a... This is tri- trial spec, so... Defender it's... 90 pickup, yeah. And it's one of the first, so it's like a 1983 car. Right. Um, and then with all sorts of... All sorts of nice, tricky bits on it. Yeah. Uh, so the, uh, we put it on the ramps in order to jack it up. Jacked it up three feet, and the wheels were still on the ground. You know, it's got really? special dislocation beams and all sorts of fancy aftermarket stuff. Wow! Which allows it to climb walls. I mean, it, it is shocking to drive on the road. It's rubbish. Oh, I bet. Yeah. But it's hilarious. I mean, it's it's, it's an awful lot of fun. So what do you what do you do with it? Just drive it through fields, or do you? Well, we. We're, we're doing a whole load of sort of off-road driver training with, with guys. And, um, and we also run a buggy in the British side-by-side racing championships, which is a Polaris. Um, yeah. We, just massive amounts of fun. And it, that sort of divergence of the sporting programme is, is really important for our, our audience of, you know, sort of veterans and service leavers, that we throw the net wide. And if we just offer track days um, with me instructing at Silverstone, um, we do a really wide range of stuff to cater for all sorts of people, so off-road things and various other bits and pieces, but also stuff which is run by different people, which is run on, on behalf of us, and stuff which is run by the lads themselves. So we've got a drifting programme that's exclusively run by um, uh, hipsters. Um, <laughs> with, Drifting's very, very cool with, at the moment, with I know, and I'm desperate to go and do it, but I, I deliberately sort of stay away from it because... Um, because it's really important that we have stuff that's kind of run with a different flavour to it. Yeah. Because, to be honest, that attracts a different sort of guy. And so we've got a continual challenge to kind of ensure that we reach out into those corners, both geographically but also in terms of interest. 
We should talk about Mission Motorsport, really. Can you give me a bit of a summary as to what it is? Uh, I mean, my background was in the army. I've always looked to raise money for forces charities throughout throughout my career. Yeah. Um, because you do, you know, it's so one of the things that's, that's close to home. And you're very aware that you may fall into the category of, of people who need help and your, your family likewise, you know, if you, if you were, were killed or injured. Uh, and for me, uh, where I was in, in a position of responsibility, I had a lot of guys who were, who were working for me who, who were injured. And I really wanted to continue to be able to do something for them. I really felt that duty of care piece yeah. was really important. And used my motorsport connections, because I've instructed for years, I've raced for a long time, right. to be able to um, ask some friends within the industry in order to help us do something stimulating for them. Started entirely on a really sort of low level um, and, uh, uh, and grew massively. And the MOD then formally tasked us to look at how we could deliver motorsport as a recovery activity. The, the wonderful thing about motorsport is that there's this incredible industry which is sat behind it who is desperate for quality people, and we've used that shamelessly in order to help find jobs for blokes, in order to help them support their, their families um, after the military. So what kind of things do, um, do guys go on to do? What would be a sort of successful path coming out of the military, perhaps injured? Um, what would Mission Motorsport do? Well, the, the interesting thing is that there is no typical path and, and it's because our object is not actually to get blokes jobs. At the end of the day, it's to help people and to look after them. And, and that really just means, you know, to ensure that them and their families are happy and provided for. Mm -hmm. And for some people that does mean job. They need to find something after the military in order to do, to bring money in, in order to support them and their family. I don't care what they do, as long as it's something which they enjoy. Yeah. As long as they wake up in the morning and you know want to throw the duvet off and go and do something mm -hmm. uh, and feel uh, and feel valued, and that can be really difficult for somebody who's uh, entered a service career never expecting that they'd be leaving early, wounded, injured, or sick. Right. Um, and some people really struggle to make that transition to civilian life, and we really help with that. Now, for other guys, they may have an income. They may have been injured, and the government provides for them. Yeah. With a, with a pension or whatever it might be um, in order to help support them. But they still need a reason to get out of bed in the morning. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and, and a sense of self that's not about looking backwards to what happened to them, but about looking forward to what they do and you know, to, to feel proud of themselves, to give their lives a bit of meaning. Yeah. And so we've got guys who come through our hands who end up volunteering, um, develop new interests, are able to re-engage through their families through some joint activity of something which you know they really uh, they really collectively enjoy and they're part of a community again. And then we've got guys who are disappearing into industry into some really fantastic roles. Um, Jaguar Land Rover is a wonderful example at the moment. Obviously, they're in huge growth, need yeah. quality people. Yeah. Uh, we've been running a wounded, injured, sick placement scheme, and we've got um, uh, fifteen guys working on eight different Jaguar Land Rover sites all in different jobs and they're all doing different things and in fact I one of them is working in actual vehicle production wow. all of the others are doing a plethora of different roles from uh, you know we've got a guardsman who's in a graduate position he's actually one of the Invictus Games athletes this year um, who um, applied for a graduate position there 
and they absolutely adored him. You know, really? we, we'd put him on placement, yeah, in powertrain, so working in, in effectively vehicle production or development. Yeah. Um, but there wasn't the right opportunity for him when he reached the end of his time. Mm-hmm. And so we looked broader across the business, and he went in with a recommendation from powertrain for a graduate post. And he was by far the best at interview. We've got another guy who's doing clay modelling at Gaydon. Um, uh, he was a guardsman for 21 years. Likes putting things in straight lines. Incredibly good with his hands. Yeah. You know, just um, yeah, wonderfully creative, and has, has found the right sort of outlet through it. And um, yeah, so it, it it's pretty That's brilliant. Good. That's really brilliant. So when somebody leaves the army, one of the armed forces, and they they may be injured. I mean, is it difficult to? If you've been in the armed forces your whole life, if you've served, you know, since you were 18 years old or whatever, is yeah. it difficult to see a different kind of future? I think it really can be. I mean, it's very difficult to understand what civilians do for a living, frankly, and where you could fit into it. And really? it can be very disheartening looking at your CV when you've left the military. Yeah. And where major employers will often cite um, the, the first bars to employment are often level of education and although the military's become much better at it than they were in the past you know typically people don't leave the army with a degree um, mm-hmm. and uh, and people really struggle to articulate their experience which is fantastic experience but in terms that a civilian HR specialist would understand um, sure. uh, the military you know whether it's army navy air force marines they, they they have their own language. They use acronyms like you wouldn't believe. We speak this weird other language, which uh, you put that down in a CV, and it just is gobbledygook yeah. to a to a civilian HR specialist. Yeah, I'm sure. Who's never served and, and hasn't seen that stuff. Um, equally, if you go on a lot of job websites, you read job descriptions and haven't got a clue what the actual job underneath is. No. Um, and if you haven't got any experience of that, it's really daunting to work out well, hang on, where the hell do I fit in. And you, you offer education now as well, don't you? Can you tell me about that? We do. We've, uh, as part of a Royal Foundation initiative, which is the charitable trust of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge and, and Prince Harry, their Endeavour Fund helped us set up a training wing which is delivering City and Guilds um, Level 3 diplomas to service leavers to help them find jobs in the automotive industry. And we've, we've got a number of guys who've been through that diploma course, are on it at the moment, and we're also looking after a number of full apprenticeships which, uh, which are running an industry where the guys are already out there working for whether it's race teams or... There's a lovely piece of work which we do with Mr Heritage for guys to learn how to do classic vehicle restoration. I've seen that place. That place looks amazing. Uh, you, it's just wonderful. I mean, it's... Um, this is on a... Is it on an airfield? It is. It, oh, it's the, it's the last remaining completely unaffected RAF base that was built between the wars and so I mean I feel very at home there obviously I spent my service career you know living on service establishments yeah and they all very much have a flavor they tended to have built around the same time you know in the around the Second World War yeah and our tree-lined avenues properly beautifully built brick buildings that will outlive you and I uh-huh. an open space and it so it's just lovely and it's they've not changed it they've not modernized it they've just preserved it as it should be but repurposed the place reimagined it and it's now full of classic Bentleys and Sopwith camels fabulous you know it's just a playground it's a great place to work isn't it yeah very much so and purely on a selfish perspective the more classic vehicle restoration specialists I can train 
the more likely I am to find help when this thing breaks down on us. <laughs> That's true. So Mishmos has been going for, what, five years or uh, thereabouts? We just passed our fourth anniversary. So five, four years. five years ago, I was bouncing around commanding the armour group in Afghanistan at this time. So it's always an interesting time on Facebook because quite a lot of the boys will remember the anniversary of when they were blown up or when, when they were injured. And yeah, of course. You know, there, there's a sort of seven-month period of the year where I will be reminded quite viscerally in the morning because you'll have blokes who, who remember that and they'll post photos and all the rest of it. And yeah. it's, um, it's really interesting. It's, um, uh, it, it's still a real sense of, of community around a time and a, and a shared thing which you do together. Um, which is quite hard, but yeah, this organisation has been running for four years, and we've we've come an awfully long way in four years. I think we really have. So you offer all sorts of motorsport, off-road yeah. stuff, drifting, uh, stunts. You've got a stunt team. Yeah, we do. Yeah, run by Lionel, who's um, yeah, single amputee, grumpy South African, who's um, <laughs> who, who I absolutely he's, adore. He's a great guy. Yeah, he is. Um, so Lionel stunt team. Uh, you do a lot of circuit racing. You yeah. host the race of remembrance, which is. Mission Motorsports own race, which is yeah, held yeah. every November. Across the Remembrance Weekend. Increasingly Remembrance a lot weekend. of off-road stuff. Uh, and also bikes, so two-wheel stuff too, because that, that's a wonderful, really? empowering sense of freedom kind of thing which you can do. And so we've got, we work with a, a wonderful organisation called the Bike Experience, which itself was founded by a Navy guy who, who himself was, uh, was left in a wheelchair. We've, we've had up to a triple amputee riding a motorbike an wow. adaptive motorbike wow. without stabilizers or any of that um, and that, that's always an amazing thing to get to do with sort of leg amputees you you start off with a release crew and a catch crew at a short distance it's a bit like you know sort of when your four or five year old learns to ride a bike and yeah. you have that moment chasing them with no stabilizers yeah. it's incredible then for somebody to crack open the throttle and yeah i go without the ability to put their legs out in order to, to save them if they, um, when they stop. Um, uh, there are two things you really need in order to ride a, a motorbike if you've got no legs. Um, one is Velcro, uh, and the other one is no sense of imagination. If you've got any <laughs> sense of imagination, you, you, you just simply wouldn't do it. But, wow. um, what's, the, what's the Velcro for? Keep, keep your sticking, bum attached to the seat. Yes. Sticking yourself to yeah, the bike. absolutely. I can't imagine what driving a car with prosthetics would be like. You actually have guys who learn to drive cars with prosthetic legs, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely, and and race as well, and to a good standard. And race, yeah. I mean, the the lovely thing about motorsports is you don't adapt the sport, you adapt the vehicle in order to allow somebody who's disabled to race on a on a level playing field against the able-bodied. Yeah. And that's really powerful. That's yeah. you know for. For, for guys who are increasingly coming to terms with the fact that they aren't a strong, fit, physically able uh, individual. They are now disabled with all of the negative connotations that may have for them. Um, yeah, that, that, can be, that can be really powerful. And the other thing is it gives you adrenaline. And of course, these are, these are normally, you know, sort of young men and women in the prime of their life who joined the armed forces in order to do something exciting that would that would stimulate them yeah and that gets taken away from you very abruptly and so um being able to give somebody that bit of adrenaline back by uh, uh but in a safe and controlled way through motorsport it's um yeah it it's it, it, uh, it can be really powerful um 
It's a hell of a lot of fun if you get it right as well. <laughs> I bet it is. So you're, um, so you've raced for a number of years, haven't you? You've been a racing instructor and a racing driver. So what's your, what's your racing background like? The army helped by posting me out to Germany for a while. So I had a happy period of my Wednesday afternoon sports afternoons being spent at the Nürburgring. Really? Um, that kind of sets the bar high in terms of expectations of circuits. Sure. Well, and then yeah. to bring it back to the UK, you know, was was fine. The journalism thing can be very useful too, as well, because that can open doors on occasion, and it can also um, uh, get your bum into uh, into things which uh, which are a real privilege to be able to get to drive. So yeah, it gives that, you connections. Yeah, uh, it does. To a lot of interesting people. That helps a great deal, and I mean, you know, so I don't get to do as much of that as I'd like these days as well, but I still do bits and pieces for Evo, um, and uh, going to go and do Evo Car of the Year, which I've done for the last sort of couple of years, right. is just phenomenal, and I'm very lucky to be able to do that. Is um, that when they collect something like 30 cars and go to one of their Welsh roads and take some beautiful photographs and yeah, the, drive them all? The last couple of years have been in Scotland, and you've got a lineup of, of, of ten cars, um, which are the sort of finest of their different types. Yeah. Throughout the year, that yeah. they've, they've experienced throughout the year, and then they're brought together for this sort of big final test. But it's done in an expeditionary way. Mm. So they take a bunch of guys, judges, uh, and go and drive them over some of the finest roads that, um, that sort of England, Scotland, and Wales can offer. Um, the last two years we've been up in Scotland, in 2015 we went and did the North Coast 500, which goes right around that very sort of northwestern tip of Scotland. Oh, it's astonishing around there, isn't it? Wonderfully, wonderfully cool. And the, you know, Scotland, the weather can do kind of two things, and we were so fortunate that the weather was extraordinarily good. It was a time mm. of year, there's no midges, there were no other distractions. And it was just jaw-droppingly beautiful. And we had an extraordinary lineup of cars, you know, Lamborghini Aventador SV, McLaren, uh, the 675 Longtail, yeah. Porsche GT3 RS, the Cayman GT4. Um, incredible, incredible stuff. The, the, the new Ferrari 488. Mm -hmm. But you'd stop and get out of the car and just like jaw-dropping scenery, scenery, just looking around. Yeah. And it's incredible when they, the country in which we live has scenery that, that's just that, that stunning. You feel very privileged oh, well, to it's live on, in the it's, UK. You know, it's on a par with the rest of the world, and it's easy to forget that. Then you go to Scotland or Wales or England or Cornwall yeah. and you realise, you know what, this is as beautiful as Hawaii. Uh, it, absolutely. Or, or, something. or just as, as much of a moment with clouds rolling, peeling over the top of these yeah. beautiful mountains. I went to what claimed to be the most remote cafe in the world once, which is on that northwest tip of Scotland. And so that's on a place called Cape Wrath. Yes. And we drove up there from Inverness. It took about a day to drive up there because we were filming. But to get there, you have to take a ferry. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which is essentially uh, a man with a dinghy and an outboard motor pushing <laughs> what looks like a piece of fencing that you put your car onto. And then you get over to the Cape, and then it's almost unpaved roads up to the lighthouse. So the ferry itself doesn't have an engine on it? No, the ferry doesn't have an engine. There's, there's a guy with a dinghy and an outboard motor pushing you. Who pushes this ferry, which is large enough for one car, <laughs> and we had to take a couple of SUVs over, which nice. took a good hour. But then you get onto the Cape, drive for another half hour, it's like being on Craggy Island or something, and then finally <laughs> you get to the lighthouse. And the lighthouse um, is occupied by a man and a woman, they've lived there for 30 years, they brought up two children there, who I think, at least one of them lives in central London, I 
right. the other one yes. might do as well. And what they say is that if you make the journey to actually go there, then they'll open for you and serve you any time of the day or night. Fantastic. So I think a lot of people do the the opposite of Land's End to John and Groves, which is somewhere in Kent to Ah, uh, yes, Brown, yes, that so sort of the, diagonal opposite route. Exactly, and that's kind of the end point, but it's an oh, amazing wonderful. place. But that drive up it's, from Inverness, it it's was... It's jaw-dropping, I mean... Oh, God, it was amazing. We've done the 2CV 24-hour race. Oh, have you? I've always thought that looked like fun. Is it horribly gruelling and things, <laughs> things go wrong all the time? Or? Yes, all of the above. I mean, those cars are made not only of cheese, but of soft French <laughs> cheese. Yeah. And so... The, it, it, teams will turn up with an engine in the car, um, a, an engine which is ready to go in, and then another one which has just come out of the car, which is being rebuilt in the pit garage in the background, because they, uh, you know, they're the beaucoup de fromage. And if you try and do motorsport <laughs> with a thing like that, you perhaps shouldn't be surprised when the thing breaks. Yeah, it used to be run at, at Snetterton, and I think the last one was run at Anglesey because they love the weather. They just really. <laughs> <laughs> it was running the height of difficult. summer and it always absolutely throws it down. We then went and did the 24-hour 2CV race at Spa, which um, wow. uh, was an extraordinary place to go and send blokes out racing. I love, I love things that are inappropriate. It's, it's, it's the in, most inappropriate stupid cars, thing in the world. Especially. Uh, and 2CVs going up Eau Rouge. Um, yeah, down Eau Rouge, no problem, but oh, if you're going up to Radion, you know. Yeah. They're, they're a little bit pedestrian to say the least. So, but they, the lovely thing about 2CV racing is because none of them have any power to speak of whatsoever. <laughs> you, you have to draft each other. And so oh, really? they'll go around, because a clump of 2CVs, because they're, they're so unaerodynamic, yes. um, travels an awful lot faster than, than nine 2CVs separately. Yeah. So you'll arrive in the corner and there's a mad scrap as everybody will go side by side. So they'll go around the corner five abreast and then everybody quickly gets into line. Because if you drop off the back of that pack, that's it, you're doomed. You'll just watch them drive away yeah, from you yeah. until you can get somebody else alongside you. Yeah, yeah. No, and they all bump draft each other down the straight. Wow. It's amazing. Do they roll? Because the suspension is so incredibly compliant, they, they roll in terms of they lean, but they don't actually fall over. So they'll, Of course, it's they'll, that. Is it hydroelastic yeah, suspension, they, that Citroen well, thing? You can just drive them across. So, you know, you turn off and go across the field and you wouldn't really notice it. I mean. That was when Citroen were, were building cars for French farmers and they had to be able to take a pig in the back and drive well, that's it, didn't drive they, to market across a, a ploughed field. Yeah, they did a test with, with a basket full of eggs, I think. Yes. One of the suspension tests, driving across a ploughed field with a basket full of eggs. That's a great sound. And the eggs have to remain intact. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I, we got very excited this year because there's, there's a, a ridiculous and little known in the English-speaking world event called Panda Raid. And Panda oh. Raid is a... African rally raid it starts in Madrid, but right. in Fiat Pandas. Right. 1980s Fiat Pandas. Fiat Pandas can do amazing things. Four by four Fiat Pandas. Or, or the two-wheel drive ones. Either or. Um, and uh, literally, they had 190-odd cars on this year's event. Wow. Only two of which were English-speaking, both friends of ours. We, we were hoping to go as well, and it rather got trumped by Defender Challenge, which is why, uh, well, it's why I get a bit cagey when, you know, you ask me how many cars I've got, because I... I would probably own up to having two Fiat Panda 4x4s at the workshop, <laughs> which which were destined for, for Panda Raid this year. But uh, we're, well, we're now looking ahead. They're kind of work cars, aren't they? Call, we're now looking ahead to next year. Cars. They don't care. Well, they, they you've got the hang of it, so that's very much. I have a very understanding wife, fortunately. It's all about excuses with cars. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Or with any kind of hoarding yeah. or collecting. Yeah. <laughs>
pump for. The visibility in this is amazing. It is, isn't it? Tiny pillars. Yeah, and, and it's these beautiful sort of thin pillars. You um, and you can reach the windscreen, you know. So if it's steamed up on the inside, you used to do it. You know, we all sort of remember, like in your first crap car, which wouldn't demist itself. You could do, you could sit in the driver's seat and do all the mirror. Yeah. Try doing that in a modern vehicle. It's true. The windscreen true. is miles away from you, and your your eight pillars are absolutely huge because they're designed for European crash regulation for rollover. Yeah. Where they drop the car, the car has to be able to be dropped from a certain height. So you end up with this enormous thick eight pillar that's also very far forward in your line of vision. And the net contribution to safety is, I'm sure it saves people's lives from rollover, but I'm sure lots of motorcyclists get run over as a result because well, I think you're right. And your C visibility C out of junction as well. Oh, huge. I mean, the, the, have you been in a current model Renault Megane? Yes. That has one of the worst, yeah. poorest visibility blind spots. I, I was because of the things of the, the secret. It's got to be a foot wide. I was at a staggered junction the other day with a trailer on the back and so had waved out the woman who was um, who was opposite me waiting to come out and she was in a Citroen of some description and I was yeah. waving at her nothing moved waving at her and then traffic came sat there and I waved at her again nothing moved and then I realized she couldn't see me and yeah. it, it, I was exactly in the A pillar and she she couldn't see me and was therefore because she wasn't going to move her head about was entirely prepared to still be sat there now. Yeah. She probably is for all I know. I eventually <laughs> lost, lost the will to live and set off. Just lost interest. It's important to note that we, we don't just go and do, do things for the, for the sake of the activity itself. Um, everything has to be driven by recovery goals and it really came from the reasons why the organisation started. We wanted to do things in order to help guys. So your starting point is the bloke and you then look at what can we do in order to help this guy and the recovery goals which might be articulated to take him forward might be all about building confidence, self-empowerment, getting somebody out of the house, um, developing teamwork, yeah. uh, relationships with others, uh, recognition of, of PTSD or, or issues of um, uh, where somebody's struggling to, to adapt to, to a, a civilian life. But, but, but not really admitting it to themselves, you know. Um, you put those together and you go and go, right, okay, what sporting model would this guy fit into that would then help him the best? What we don't do is we go, oh, there's a shiny thing. Let's go now and go and try and find some blokes in order to fill it. And yeah, yeah. recently, I guess, we had a really good example of that, the, the Silverstone 24-hour race. Mm. Um, we've got a great history of doing. I mean, and that's endurance racing. That's really sort of my bag and my, my background. Yeah. Um, you know, we have uh, car, cars actually from manufacturers who are keen for us to go and do it and put a budget aside for us to be able to do it. Um, grants of, of tyres, and you're talking about sort of £20,000 worth for a race like that. Um, In tyres? Um, or more, yeah. For one vehicle? Or? For one, one car over wow. a sort of 24 hour period. That's the kind of budget you need set aside for Jeez. that. But had that support in place, but elected not to go and do it. And the reason for that is that even though much of that gift would have been gift in kind and would not come through our books, yeah. it's still a significant spend of charity collateral yeah. to go and do something that, yeah, by God, I've got drivers with international sea licences who would have loved to have gone and done that race, and they would have, they would have done it, but they're all guys who are further along the, the chain. They're much more sorted out. They, 
don't have such great a need anymore. Mm -hmm. And if you go and do an Everest of motorsport, it sits on a pyramid of lots of great activity for lots of people that, that together add up to making it happen. And so the timing was wrong for us. If it had been in September, we'd have, um, we would probably have bitten their arm off. But, um, but we elected not to, get, not to go and do something. And we, wow. we make all the decisions about the sport that we do on that basis based on what's right for the blokes. Because if we're not continually asking ourselves that question, then we're not, we're not getting it right. And we're not worthy of our, of our status as, yeah, of as the forces motorsport charity. Fun and spending people's money. But I completely understand. What did you do instead? Uh, well, that weekend, uh, it coincided with the team of guys in North Wales doing North Wales stages. We also had uh, the buggy was out racing that weekend. We also had Mikey Court, so one of our guys is now trained up as an instructor as well. Right, oh, that's cool. Racing up in Knock Hill in the BMW Compact Championship. Yeah. And we were also doing passenger laps for charity with a bunch of our drivers and our supporters at Castle Coombe the same weekend. So, we, yeah. <laughs> so to be fair, it wasn't like there was nothing going on, you know, we sort of taken the weekend off. Yeah. Loads of stuff which is going on all the time. And that, that growth of the organisation has been, has been really marked, and particularly over the last sort of 18 months or so, because it all started 1st of March 2012 with a, with a budget of zero. So everything which we've done, achieved and accumulated since has been, uh, has been worked for, begged, borrowed or stolen. Yeah. Hopefully not stolen. No, reappropriated. Maybe pinched. Yes. We do find that, that those who see what we do and see how hard we work and the, the very visceral effect that it has tend to be our greatest supporters. And, and it's lovely because they come back and they want to help with future things, you know. You first came and met us when we were doing a piece over Race of Remembrance, you know, a few I years did, back. Yeah. Um, but we, we now can't get rid of you. <laughs> it's true. And, uh, and you, true. you sort I of keep to be around about, turning about up, once every three months. I turn keep up. turning up and imposing yourself on us. And it, but it's it's lovely. It's you know, true. it's it's really nice. And it's because you meet the characters and you see the very real effect that it has on their lives. Yeah, completely. Completely. Um, and also, we have this sort of travelling population because we're not the end state. We're not the end solution. So, James Webley, our workshop manager, you know, you know, our sort of West Country Viking. Yeah. Um, ex-Remy soldier, was medically discharged, early onset arthritis, aggravated by service, and multiple tours of, of Iraq and Afghanistan, and was medically discharged at the end of 2014, so about 15 months ago, uh -huh. um, uh, and was being looked at for a double hip replacement. Wow. We'd put him on placement into Jaguar Land Rover, and while he certainly could have gone into a job, it wasn't going to be the thing that was going to flick his switches or or really engage him for, for a fuller career. And he came to work with us um, and has led on all sorts of fantastic projects over the last um, 12 months or so. Done a lot of great activity himself, but enabled a huge amount for other people. Sure. And that portfolio of work that he's done has now meant that he's um, uh, was interviewed for and has got a job at Jaguar Land Rover Special Vehicle Operations. Wow. Which is ridiculously cool. And wow. Um, interesting and engaging and all of those things and so we lose him you know he's fantastic central yeah. to the organization um, he's really undergone a sort of personal journey as well over the course of the last 18 months I'm sure. um, and uh, you know we're, we're incredibly proud that um, that he'll, he'll go on and do and do sort of great things it, it, low level for us 
oh, it's a pain because we we now you know you you really invest in somebody they be, you know they they, they realise this fantastic potential mm. and then you lose them. Uh, well, I mean on. that's the whole point of it, I guess, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. And he'll he'll I'm sure like a lot of your kind of uh, alumni, as it were. Yeah. I'm sure they stick around and and pop they do. in and remain, remain part of the family. They remain engaged for all sorts of things. So what's next for this car then? You just have to stay on top of them in order to make sure they're all right. I mean, I, I haven't used it much over winter. I wouldn't take it out when it's salty if I can avoid it, but it does get used and it goes out mm. in all weathers. But, um, so I just need to stay on top of that. But on the interior, and this is the big bit, you see, so we're sat on 1980s um, 3.2 seats that came out of the same car that donated the 3.2 in the back of it. Yeah, so these are kind of tombstone style. Exactly, yeah, so these are the tombstones. So, yeah, very favoured um, amongst Golf Mark II owners. Yeah, yeah um, that's true. So I'll have no difficulty shifting them on eBay, but what I need to do is to backdate the interior back to the 1970s. This is used for the Cameron family holiday every year, so I do 3,000 miles a summer in this, going down to the south. you a family holiday in it? Yeah. Where do you put your family? Wife and kids fly, so I've got two. <laughs> so they fly down, and my mate and I, He's got a silly old BMW and I've got this. <laughs> and we drive down and what we've managed to do is to hide a week-long bloke's driving holiday on either end of the <laughs> yeah. family holiday. Exactly so you fill it up with all the crap and buckets and spades and stuff that they yeah. want for holiday. Yeah, which and you then, can't get on a plane. Which you can't get on a plane. And then Ben and I drive down via Hotel de France at Le Mans, Angoulême, friend's house, sort of down that <laughs> neck of the woods. And you get down there, dump all the stuff in a villa yeah. and then pull around the front of the airport and the missus wanders out and gets to feel like, you know, Grace Kelly as you sweep up in the, <laughs> in the car to pick her up with the kids. And then we sort of do vice versa on the way back. So, wow. Chuck them on a plane and then we drive back the long way. What um, a great idea. It's worked out well. I've done it for the last two summers and the cars never let us down. I mean, on the way back last time as well, we did a couple of hand, um, uh, hill climbs that are on the old Tour Auto route and a track day at Power No. Oh, really? Which um, was just ace, you know, it's absolutely great. Well, it's slightly strange in the, you know, in the, the pit lane of the track day, because I then emptied this huge pile of buckets <laughs> and spades and an entire family's worth of, you know, rubbish that they took on holiday, left it in the, went, drove, drove on the track day and then packed it all back into the car at the end of the day and drove it back to the UK. Yeah, but a 911 will do that. Should we head back to, uh, to HQ? Yep, absolutely. MMHQ. At the moment, we've got um, a livery job in. So at the beginning of this week was the uh, Jaguar F-Pace that was in front of the Houses of Parliament with Prince Harry for the Invictus, Invictus Games, Games team allow announcement, which was all done, designed in-house, you know, with a, a friend of ours, who, who Tim Hutton, who's done some wonderful work. And yeah. at the moment, we're doing um, Natalie McGloin's uh, Cayman, which was the car that James Webley built last year and was part of his his portfolio, which came in on hand controls for a tetraplegic that races in the Porsche Club Championship. Wow. And we're, we're now doing a really lovely livery job on that. So there's, there's three guys who are, who are working on that at the moment. So I've got to go back and see how they're getting on. Wow, I saw, I saw that when I, um, when I came to meet you this morning. So this is a Cayman with, uh, with one of the kind of classic sort of hand controls for the uh, mm. The gas and the brake pedal, but, it, but I think it took a lot of work, didn't it, to make it? It did. Right, a, a straightforward push-pull for Natalie. Um, she was tiring, much um, uh, 
because those muscle groups, bicep, tricep, are not her strongest. Yeah. And we looked at actually, because she does wheelchair rugby and things like that. Mm. You know, so we're like, well, how do you manage to do that but not, but then get tired when you're you're driving using a different set of controls? And she very much uses her shoulders. So mm -hmm. the seat was specially built and is canted back at an angle so that her, the throw of the brake for her is um, uh, is is that throw of the shoulder and we've changed the way the harness runs across her shoulders yeah. in order to uh, in order to accommodate it um, but then because you if you have a push-pull control for accelerator and brake you can kind of overlap those two to be sharply off one and onto the other but you can't do both at the same time so that one we've changed so it now works on a radial system so mm. to brake you push the thing away from you to accelerate you swing it down oh, okay. so you can actually brake mid-corner so you can left foot brake you can right. do some really sort of nice things with it oh, in order wow. to help balance the car yeah. well we're back now back at Mission Motorsport so it's been a, been a real pleasure talking to you no always a pleasure it's been a been a good run in the Porsche as well the best thing that ever happened to this was that I bought that race car the 1976 one yeah so it stopped me playing with this and ruining it <laughs> um, right. you would have gone too far I would have, I would have gone too far and it'd be too harsh and stuff and then have a cage yeah. in it and but it, it's it, a nice road car isn't it it it's really a, is so nice it's a nice road, road car, car and I kind of I've, I've managed to sort of keep it like that mm. if we'd have gone out in the yellow one it would um, we'd have got round a lot quicker we'd both be slightly deaf yeah and we'd have learned very little from the experience. And no one would want to listen to this either. No. It'd just be a bit too loud. No, Unless you're the kind of person who goes on YouTube just to listen to 10 minutes of engine note of a car going around a particular circuit. Yeah, that's, that's me. But then... But you did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, maybe you'd listen to it. Oh, no, it's not. All no, right. No, I don't have time. Um, thank no. you very much, mate. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. James from Mission Motorsport there. Well, I hope you enjoyed our chat. And if you haven't heard of Mission Motorsport before, I really hope you like the sound of what they do because they're a fantastic bunch of people who work very, very hard and they do achieve really, really amazing things. And rest assured, James, I'll find some excuse to come and annoy you again soon. So next week, there'll be another one of these with another top guest. I hope you'll come back then. And if you want, you can look me up on Twitter, at motor underscore mouthing. And if you're doing that, you can look up Mission Motorsport on there as well. And you can see all the things that they get up to. Thanks for listening.